Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Chapter 12 of Adam Bede by George Eliot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Denham. In the Wood That same Thursday morning... As Arthur Donnithorne was moving about in his dressing-room, seeing his well-looking British person reflected in the old-fashioned mirrors, and stared at from a dingy olive-green piece of tapestry by Pharaoh's daughter and her maidens, who ought to have been minding the infant Moses, he was holding a discussion with himself, which, by the time his valet was tying the black silk sling over his shoulder, had issued in a distinct practical resolution. "'I mean to go to Eagledale and fish for a week or so,' he said aloud. "'I shall take you with me, Pym, and set off this morning. So be ready by half-past eleven. The low whistle which had assisted him in arriving at this resolution here broke out into his loudest ringing tenor, and the corridor, as he hurried along it, echoed to his favourite song from the beggar's opera, "'When the heart of a man is oppressed with care!' Not an heroic strain. Nevertheless, Arthur felt himself very heroic as he strode towards the stables to give his orders about the horses. His own approbation was necessary to him, and it was not an approbation to be enjoyed quite gratuitously. It must be won by a fair amount of merit. He had never yet forfeited that approbation, and he had considerable reliance on his own virtues. No young man could confess his faults more candidly. Candour was one of his favourite virtues, and how can a man's candour be seen in all its lustre unless he has a few failings to talk of? but he had an agreeable confidence that his faults were all of a generous kind, impetuous, warm-blooded, leonine, never crawling, crafty, reptilian. It was not possible for Arthur Donathorne to do anything mean, dastardly, or cruel. No, I'm a devil of a fellow for getting myself into a hobble, but I always take care the load shall fall on my own shoulders. Unhappily, there is no inherent poetical justice in hobbles, and they will sometimes obstinately refuse to inflict their worst consequences on the prime offender, in spite of his loudly expressed wish. It was entirely owing to this deficiency in the scheme of things that Arthur had ever brought any one into trouble besides himself. He was nothing if not good-natured, and all his pictures of the future, when he should come into the estate, were made up of a prosperous, contented tenantry, adoring their landlord, who would be the model of an English gentleman. 
mansion in first-rate order, all elegance and high taste, jolly housekeeping, finest stud in Loamshire, purse open to all public objects, in short, everything as different as possible from what was now associated with the name of Donnithorne. And one of the first good actions he would perform in that future would be to increase Irwine's income for the vicarage of Hayslope, so that he might keep a carriage for his mother and sisters. His hearty affection for the rector, dated from the age of frocks and trousers. It was an affection partly filial, partly fraternal, fraternal enough to make him like Irwine's company better than that of most younger men, and filial enough to make him shrink strongly from incurring Irwine's disapprobation. You perceive that Arthur Donnithorne was a good fellow. All his college friends thought him such. He couldn't bear to see anyone uncomfortable. He would have been sorry even in his angriest moods for any harm to happen to his grandfather. And his Aunt Lydia herself had the benefit of that soft-heartedness which he bore towards the whole sex. Whether he would have self-mastery enough to be always as harmless and purely beneficent as his good nature led him to desire, was a question that no one had yet decided against him. He was but twenty-one, you remember, and we don't inquire too closely into character in the case of a handsome, generous young fellow who will have property enough to support numerous peccadilloes, who, if he should unfortunately break a man's legs in his rash driving, will be able to pension him handsomely, or, if he should happen to spoil a woman's existence for her, will make it up to her with expensive bonbons, packed up and directed by his own hand. It would be ridiculous to be prying and analytic in such cases, as if one were inquiring into the character of a confidential clerk. We use round, general, gentlemanly epithets about a young man of birth and fortune. And ladies with that fine intuition which is the distinguishing attribute of their sex, see at once that he is nice. The chances are that he will go through life without scandalising anyone. A seaworthy vessel that no one would refuse to insure. Ships certainly are liable to casualties, which sometimes make terribly evident some flaw in their construction that would never have been discoverable in smooth water. And many a good fellow, through a disastrous combination of circumstances, has undergone a like betrayal. But we have no fair ground for entertaining unfavourable auguries concerning Arthur Donnithorne, who this morning proves himself capable of a prudent resolution founded on conscience. One thing is clear. Nature has taken care that he shall never go far astray with perfect comfort and satisfaction to himself. He will never get beyond that borderland of sin where he will be perpetually harassed by assaults from the other side of the boundary. He will never be a courtier of vice, and wear her orders in his buttonhole. 
It was about ten o'clock, and the sun was shining brilliantly. Everything was looking lovelier for the yesterday's rain. It is a pleasant thing on such a morning to walk along the well-rolled gravel on one's way to the stables, meditating an excursion. But the scent of the stables, which in a natural state of things ought to be among the soothing influences of a man's life, always brought with it some irritation to Arthur. There was no having his own way in the stables. Everything was managed in the stingiest fashion. His grandfather persisted in retaining as head groom an old dolt whom no sort of lever could move out of his old habits, and who was allowed to hire a succession of raw Lomshire lads as his subordinates, one of whom had lately tested a new pair of shears by clipping an oblong patch on Arthur's bay mare. This state of things is naturally embittering. One can put up with annoyances in the house, but to have the stable made a scene of vexation and disgust is a point beyond what human flesh and blood can be expected to endure long together without danger of misanthropy. Old John's wooden, deep-wrinkled face was the first object that met Arthur's eyes as he entered the stable-yard, and it quite poisoned for him the bark of the two bloodhounds that kept watch there. He could never speak quite patiently to the old blockhead. "'You must have Meg saddled for me and brought to the door at half-past eleven, and I shall want Rattler saddled for Pym at the same time. Do you hear?' "'Yes, I hear, I hear, Captain,' said old John, very deliberately, following the young master into the stable. John considered a young master as the natural enemy of an old servant, and young people in general as a poor contrivance for carrying on the world. Arthur went in for the sake of patting Meg, declining as far as possible to see anything in the stables, lest he should lose his temper before breakfast. The pretty creature was in one of the inner stables, and turned her mild head as her master came beside her. Little Trot, a tiny spaniel, her inseparable companion in the stable, was comfortably curled up on her back. "'Well, Meg, my pretty girl,' said Arthur, patting her neck, "'we'll have a glorious canter this morning.' "'Nay, Your Honour, I dunna see as that can be,' said John. "'Not be? Why not?' "'Why, she's got lamed.' "'Lamed, confound you! What do you mean?' "'Why, the lad took her too close to Dalton's hosses, and one an em flung out at her, and she's got her shank bruised o' the near foreleg. The judicious historian abstains from narrating precisely what ensued. You understand that there was a great deal of strong language, mingled with soothing hoo-hoos while the leg was examined, that John stood by with quite as much emotion as if he had been a cunningly carved crab-tree walking-stick, 
and that Arthur Donnithorne presently repassed the iron gates of the pleasure-ground, without singing as he went. He considered himself thoroughly disappointed and annoyed. There was not another mount in the stable for himself and his servant besides Meg and Rattler. It was vexatious, just when he wanted to get out of the way for a week or two. It seemed culpable in providence to allow such a combination of circumstances. To be shut up at the chase with a broken arm when every other fellow in his regiment was enjoying himself at Windsor, shut up with his grandfather, who had the same sort of affection for him as for his parchment deeds, and to be disgusted at every turn with the management of the house and the estate. In such circumstances a man necessarily gets in an ill humour, and works off the irritation by some excess or other. Salkeld would have drunk a bottle of port every day, he muttered to himself, but I'm not well seasoned enough for that. Well, since I can't go to Eagledale, I'll have a gallop on Rattler to Norburn this morning, and lunch with Gawain. Behind this explicit resolution there lay an implicit one. If he lunched with Gawain and lingered chatting, he should not reach the chase again till nearly five, when Hetty would be safe out of his sight in the housekeeper's room, and when she set out to go home, it would be his lazy time after dinner, so he should keep out of her way altogether. There really would have been no harm in being kind to the little thing, and it was worth dancing with a dozen ballroom bells only to look at Hetty for half an hour. But perhaps he had better not take any more notice of her. It might put notions into her head, as Irwine had hinted, though Arthur, for his part, thought girls were not by any means so soft and easily bruised. Indeed, he had generally found them twice as cool and cunning as he was himself. As for any real harm in Hetty's case, it was out of the question. Arthur Donnithorne accepted his own bond for himself with perfect confidence. So the twelve o'clock sun saw him galloping towards Norburn, and by good fortune Halsell Common lay in his road and gave him some fine leaps for Rattler. Nothing like taking a few bushes and ditches for exercising a demon, and it is really astonishing that the centaurs, with their immense advantages in this way, have left so bad a reputation in history. After this you will perhaps be surprised to hear that although Gawain was at home, the hand of the dial in the courtyard has scarcely cleared the last stroke of three when Arthur returned through the entrance gates, got down from the panting rattler, and went into the house to take a hasty luncheon. But I believe there have been men since his day, who have ridden a long way to avoid a rencontre, and then galloped hastily back, lest they should miss it. It is the favourite stratagem of our passions, to sham a retreat, and to turn sharp round upon us at the moment we have made up our minds that the day is our own. 
"'The captain's been riding the devil's own pace,' said Dalton, the coachman, whose person stood out in high relief as he smoked his pipe against the stable wall when John brought up Rattler. "'And I wish he'd get the devil to do's grooming for growled John. "'Ay, he'd have a deal hamlum a groom nor what he has now,' observed Dalton and the joke appeared to him so good that being left alone upon the scene he continued at intervals to take his pipe from his mouth in order to wink at an imaginary audience and shake luxuriously with a silent ventral laughter mentally rehearsing the dialogue from the beginning that he might recite it with effect in the servants hall When Arthur went up to his dressing-room again after luncheon, it was inevitable that the debate he had had with himself there earlier in the day should flash across his mind. But it was impossible for him now to dwell on the remembrance, impossible to recall the feelings and reflections which had been decisive with him then, any more than to recall the peculiar scent of the air that had freshened him when he first opened his window. The desire to see Hetty had rushed back like an ill-stemmed current. He was amazed himself at the force with which this trivial fancy seemed to grasp him. He was even rather tremulous as he brushed his hair. Pooh! It was riding in that breakneck way. It was because he had made a serious affair of an idle matter by thinking of it as if it were of any consequence. He would amuse himself by seeing Hetty to-day, and get rid of the whole thing from his mind. It was all Irwine's fault. If Irwine had said nothing, I shouldn't have thought half so much of Hetty as of Meg's lameness. However, it was just the sort of day for lolling in the hermitage, and he would go and finish Dr. Moore's Zelyuko there, before dinner. The hermitage stood in Fir-tree Grove, the way Hetty was sure to come in walking from the Hall Farm. So nothing could be simpler and more natural. Meeting Hetty was a mere circumstance of his walk, not its object. Arthur's shadow flitted rather faster among the sturdy oaks of the chase than might have been expected from the shadow of a tired man on a warm afternoon, and it was still scarcely four o'clock when he stood before the tall, narrow gate leading into the delicious labyrinthine wood which skirted one side of the chase, and which was called Fir-tree Grove, not because the firs were many, but because they were few. It was a wood of beeches and limes, with here and there a light silver-stemmed birch, just a sort of wood most haunted by the nymphs. You see their white sunlit limbs gleaming athwart the boughs, or peeping from behind the smooth-sweeping outline of a tall lime. You hear their soft, liquid laughter, but if you look with a too curious, sacrilegious eye, they vanish behind the silvery beeches, they make you believe that their voice was only a running brooklet, 
Perhaps they metamorphose themselves into a tawny squirrel that scampers away and mocks you from the topmost bough. It was not a grove with measured grass or rolled gravel for you to tread upon, but with narrow, hollow-shaped earthy paths, edged with faint dashes of delicate moss, paths which look as if they were made by the free will of the trees and underwood, moving reverently aside to look at the tall queen of the white-footed nymphs. It was along the broadest of these paths that Arthur Donithorne passed, under an avenue of limes and beeches. It was a still afternoon. The golden light was lingering languidly among the upper boughs, only glancing down here and there on the purple pathway and its edge of faintly sprinkled moss. An afternoon in which destiny disguises her cold, awful face behind a hazy, radiant veil, encloses us in warm, downy wings, and poisons us with violet-scented breath. Arthur strolled along carelessly, with a book under his arm, but not looking on the ground, as meditative men are apt to do. His eyes would fix themselves on the distant bend in the road, round which a little figure must surely appear before long. Ah, there she comes! First a bright patch of colour like a tropic bird among the boughs, then a tripping figure with a round hat on and a small basket under her arm, then a deep-blushing, almost frightened, but bright-smiling girl making her curtsy with a fluttered yet happy glance as Arthur came up to her. If Arthur had had time to think at all, he would have thought it strange that he should feel fluttered too, be conscious of blushing too, in fact look and feel as foolish as if he had been taken by surprise instead of meeting just what he expected. Poor things! It was a pity they were not in that golden age of childhood when they would have stood face to face, eyeing each other with timid liking, then given each other a little butterfly kiss, and toddled off to play together. Arthur would have gone home to his silk-curtained cot, and Hetty to her homespun pillow, and both would have slept without dreams, and tomorrow would have been a life hardly conscious of a yesterday. Arthur turned round and walked by Hetty's side without giving a reason. They were alone together for the first time. What an overpowering presence that first privacy is! He actually dared not look at this little butter-maker for the first minute or two. As for Hetty, her feet rested on a cloud, and she was borne along by warm zephyrs. She had forgotten her rose-coloured ribbons, she was no more conscious of her limbs than if her childish soul had passed into a water-lily, resting on a liquid bed and warmed by the midsummer sunbeams. It may seem a contradiction 
but Arthur gathered a certain carelessness and confidence from his timidity. It was an entirely different state of mind from what he had expected in such a meeting with Hetty, and full as he was of vague feeling, there was room in those moments of silence for the thought that his previous debates and scruples were needless. "'You are quite right to choose this way of coming to the chase,' he said at last, looking down at Hetty. "'It is so much prettier, as well as shorter than coming by either of the lodgers.' "'Yes, sir,' Hetty answered, with a tremulous, almost whispering voice. She didn't know one bit how to speak to a gentleman like Mr. Arthur, and her very vanity made her more coy of speech. "'Do you uh, come every week to see Mrs. Pomfret?' "'Yes, sir, every Thursday, only when she's got to go out with Miss Donithorne.' "'And she's teaching you something, is she?' "'Yes, sir. The lace-mending as she learnt abroad, and the stocking-mending. It looks just like the stocking. You can't tell it's been mended, and she teaches me cutting out, too.' "'What?' "'Are you going to be a lady's maid?' "'I should like to be one very much indeed,' Hetty spoke more audibly now, but still rather tremulously. She thought perhaps she seemed as stupid to Captain Donnithorne as Luke Britton did to her. "'I suppose Mrs. Pomfret always expects you at this time?' "'She expects me at four o'clock.' I'm rather late today because my aunt couldn't spare me, but the regular time is four, because that gives us time before Miss Donithorne's bell rings. Ah, then, I must not keep you now, else I should like to show you the hermitage. Did you ever see it? No, sir. This is the walk where we turn up to it. But we must not go now. I'll show you it some other time, if you'd like to see it. "'Yes, please, sir.' "'Do you always come back this way in the evening, or are you afraid to come so lonely a road?' "'Oh, no, sir, it's never late. I always set out by eight o'clock, and it's so light now in the evening. My aunt would be angry with me if I didn't get home before nine. "'Perhaps uh, Craig the gardener comes to take care of you?' A deep blush overspread Hetty's face and neck. "'I'm sure he doesn't. I'm sure he never did. I wouldn't let him. I don't like him,' she said hastily, and the tears of vexation had come so fast that before she had done speaking a bright drop rolled down her hot cheek. Then she felt ashamed to death that she was crying, and for one long instant her happiness was all gone but in the next she felt an arm steal round her, and a gentle voice said, "'Why, Hetty, what makes you cry? I didn't mean to vex you. I wouldn't vex you for the world, you little blossom. Come, don't cry. Look at me, else I shall think you won't forgive me.' Arthur had laid his hand on the soft arm that was nearest to him and was stooping towards Hetty with a look of coaxing entreaty. Hetty lifted her long dewy lashes, 
and met the eyes that were bent towards her with a sweet, timid, beseeching look. What a space of time those three moments were while their eyes met and his arms touched her. Love is such a simple thing when we have only one and twenty summers and a sweet girl of seventeen trembles under our glance, as if she were a bud first opening her heart with wondering rapture to the morning. Such young, unfurrowed souls roll to meet each other like two velvet peaches that touch softly and are at rest. They mingle as easily as true brooklets that ask for nothing but to entwine themselves and ripple with ever-interlacing curves in the leafiest hiding-places. While Arthur gazed into Hetty's dark, beseeching eyes, it made no difference to him what sort of English she spoke, and even if hoops and powder had been in fashion, he would very likely not have been sensible just then that Hetty wanted those signs of high breeding. But they started asunder with beating hearts. Something had fallen on the ground with a rattling noise. It was Hetty's basket. All her little workwoman's matters were scattered on the path, some of them showing a capability of rolling to great lengths. There was much to be done in picking up, and not a word was spoken. But when Arthur hung the basket over her arm again, the poor child felt a strange difference in his look and manner. He just pressed her hand and said, with a look and tone that were almost chilling to her, "'I have been hindering you. I must not keep you any longer now.' You will be expected at the house. Good-bye. Without waiting for her to speak, he turned away from her and hurried back towards the road that led to the hermitage, leaving Hetty to pursue her way in a strange dream that seemed to have begun in bewildering delight and was now passing into contrarieties and sadness. Would he meet her again as she came home? Why had he spoken almost as if he were displeased with her, and then run away so suddenly? She cried, hardly knowing why. Arthur, too, was very uneasy, but his feelings were lit up for him by a more distinct consciousness. He hurried to the hermitage which stood in the heart of the wood, unlocked the door with a hasty wrench, slammed it after him, pitched Zeluco into the most distant corner, and thrusting his right hand into his pocket, first walked four or five times up and down the scanty length of the little room, and then seated himself on the ottoman in an uncomfortable, stiff way, as we often do when we wish not to abandon ourselves to feeling. He was getting in love with Hetty, that was quite plain. He was ready to pitch everything else, no matter where, for the sake of surrendering himself to this delicious feeling which had just disclosed itself. It was no use blinking the fact now. They would get too fond of each other, if he went on taking notice of her, and what would come of it? 
He should have to go away in a few weeks, and the poor little thing would be miserable. He must not see her alone again. He must keep out of her way. What a fool he was for coming back from Gawain's! He got up and threw open the windows to let in the soft breath of the afternoon, and the healthy scent of the firs that made a belt round the hermitage. The soft air did not help his resolution as he leaned out and looked into the leafy distance, but he considered his resolution sufficiently fixed. There was no need to debate with himself any longer. He had made up his mind not to meet Hetty again, and now he might give himself up to thinking how immensely agreeable it would be if circumstances were different. How pleasant it would have been to meet her this evening as she came back, and put his arm round her again, and look into her sweet face. He wondered if the dear little thing were thinking of him too. Twenty to one she was. How beautiful her eyes were with the tear on their lashes. He would like to satisfy his soul for a day with looking at them, and he must see her again, he must see her, simply to remove any false impression from her mind about his manner to her just now. He would behave in a quiet, kind way to her, just to prevent her from going home with her head full of wrong fancies. Yes, that would be the best thing to do, after all. It was a long while, more than an hour, before Arthur had brought his meditations to this point. But once arrived there, he could stay no longer at the hermitage. The time must be filled up with movement until he should see Hetty again. And it was already late enough to go and dress for dinner, for his grandfather's dinner hour was six. End of chapter 12 Recording by Tom Denham. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.